and welcome back to the Voice of the Child podcast. For our new listeners, I'm Natasha, the founder of Researching Reform, a project dedicated to child welfare and the creator of this podcast series, which aims to highlight the way law and policy affect children in the UK and beyond. Before I introduce this week's guest, though, and our topic, we have some more questions from our listeners, but I try to answer as many of those as I can through Researching Reform's website and Facebook page, so there is only one left for me to answer, which is, Natasha, please could you make the podcast available in transcript format too? Now, I don't actually have the ability to do that at the moment, um, although I know that a lot of families and listeners like to be able to read text as well as listen so that they can go over what's been said in their own time. Um, But I did try and go online and do some research to see if I could find an easy and free way for listeners to do that, but I had no luck. So if anyone knows of a way that that can be done, it would be great if you could pop down any suggestions on our social media or our website. Moving on to today's show... My guest is Ed Nixon, a social worker who helped to found the Every Child Leaving Care Matters project, which calls on the government to support every child in care up to the age of 21. Ed has also advised the government on children's social care policy at the Department for Education and is a trustee of Pure Insight, a care leavers charity based in Stockport. Ed, thank you so much for coming onto the programme. You're very welcome. So we're going to talk today about children in care, the experiences that you've had working with them and your experience at government level as well, and all of the work that you've done uh, and the themes and narratives that you've come across and that you've observed in your um, 30 years, 40 years as a, as a social worker. It's 40 plus, I'm afraid now. That's a wonderful amount of experience. Um, so let's begin with your positions within government and how you found that phase of your work. Did you find the government understood a great deal about children when you started working with them? I mean, firstly, I, sh- I should say, I guess, that it, it, it's by no means extensive. Um, I I was identified by Sir Martin Nery as somebody that should be involved with DfE when they were setting up what's called the Staying Close Process uh, Project. Um, which in itself was a compromise um, because I wanted them to change things so that children leaving residential care could stay put. Anyway, Sir Martin, who I'd met with on a few occasions, was was kind enough to suggest that. I don't think government knows much at all about children in care, is, is sad to say. I think the best children's minister we ever had in, in my recent memory, was, was Tim Loudon, um, because he knew very little, but he had ears and he listened. And I think he began to get um, children in care. I look, at, I look at children's ministers, and I suppose I'm bound to say this because I'm prejudiced. When, when a new cabinet is formed, you know, they, they trot out, the new chancellor of the Exchequer is going to be Mickey Mouse. Um, the new Home Secretary is going to be so-and-so. It's normally about three days before they get around to Children's Minister. Um, And I'm not knocking any of the individual Children's Ministers, but that kind of says to me, yeah, they're way down our list of priorities. You know, we'll worry about Children's Minister. Now, I think that Children's Minister should be one of the most important jobs in government. And I I think we should have a Children's Minister at the Cabinet table, frankly. Because we're talking about our future, and I don't know, the, fig- the figures vary, but you know, around 10% of the children in this country may end up going into care. That's a huge chunk of our population, and 
we, we had this brief chat before we started about, you know, the corporate parent. Wonderful expression. Yeah. Um, we are parent to these children. We're the only, we're the only parent some of them have, in, in fact. Um, not because their own parents don't care. I'm sure their own parents do care for them and, and, and love them in the best way they can, in almost all cases. But, but why would a children's minister be put so far down the list? Because that doesn't mean parenting is going to be very good as far as I'm concerned. And my, as I say, limited experience in working with government departments is that they, they don't get it. Just taking us back for a moment to, to the language that's used inside the care system, because you touched on that a little earlier, things like the corporate parents, things like unit in terms of where these children are living. These are all incredibly cold phrases and terms. Um, how does that affect children in care? They're dispassionate words. Um, most, most children in care that I know still refer to themselves as being in care. And actually, most of the children in care that I know now were born after children in care stop being the, the right language, as it were, and they should be looked after children. I remember saying to a colleague when when I read the Children Act, which is which is good by and large, it's, it's, it's a good piece of legislation, looked after children. Looked after is what I'd ask somebody to do to my bike while I went into a shop. You know, just keep an eye on that, will you? Um, <sighs> care is okay. Care doesn't label if it's, if it's right. And, and I think Children in care is much better in expression than looked after children. But more importantly, so does every child in care I know. And that's, that's not thousands. But I can't, would it, why would it? Because the trouble is, social work, like everything else, loves acronyms. So they're not even looked after children. They're lax. If, if you want to use a bit of an amatopoeia, then lax is the way they are treated as well. You know, but the spelling changes. I have uh, to say, as a, as a parent... None of those terms sit well with me, even even the, the revised terms. Mm. They, they all seem like they are in some way trying to single out that child for being different somehow. In reality, every child is looked after, whether it's by a birth parent or um, a, an aunt or an uncle, whoever it might be. Every child is, is being looked after in one way or another. Um, and it concerns me that, that that language is still being used. Is there not a way that we can produce a system or a process which allows us to use really natural language when we're talking about children who are being taken into care or being looked after by foster parents? Parents, do we really have to use this kind of, of rather corporate vocabulary? I, I, I don't think so at all. Uh, I mean, the, the other implication of looked after, you know, a child achieving looked after status implies that they weren't looked after before. And that's not always true. Sometimes parents just didn't have enough to, to make it possible for the child to live with them. But of, of course we can, we can change the language. But actually, we don't need to change the language. We need to use the language that we use in every other context. They're just children. We're just adults. Um, you know, if, if they want to call me Mr. Something, fine, we can do that. And every child I've known, you know, in whatever job I've been, is called me Ed, because that's my name. You know, I remember I remember an instance with a little boy in a, in a children's home that I went to in, in Shropshire. Um, and I happened to be the sort of chief executive of the company. But I used to visit the children's homes um, early in the morning, whenever I could, unannounced, because breakfast time is mad in any house, and 
I, I used to want to go at breakfast time because I knew it would be mad, be chaos, get the kids' homework ready, maybe getting them off to school, whichever school they were going to, whether it was the school we had in the company or, or external schools. There'd be mess everywhere. Um, every, you know, it's like every household, but if you've got four children living there, it's, it's busy, especially if they're all 13 or 13, 14, something like that, which wouldn't normally happen in most families. And what I always used to do is, is get, get let in and I'd go in the kitchen because the one thing I could guarantee is to be a sink full of dishes. And I used to start clearing the sink, just thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll get on with this and people will come and go. And, and this young man arrived who I knew but didn't know me. He'd only recently been admitted to the children's home. Um, and I said, hello, you must be calling him by name. He said, yeah, how do you know that? I said, oh, I, work, I work here. And he said, oh, right. And he says, what do, you, do you just wash dishes? And I said, no, I wash dishes when there's dishes that need washing. And one of the staff came in and said, oh, hello, you've met Ed. And this, this little boy said, yeah. And, and he said, oh, Ed's, Ed's the boss of the company. And this little boy said, well, why are you washing dishes? I said, because the dishes needed washed. And we, we've got to normalise children. I, a great friend of mine has, has recently retired um, and he's been fighting for children's rights, particularly children in residential care for years. And, and part of my little gift to him when when I left was, was a poem. And it, it started off, my house has a number, not a name. Um, and it was trying to represent that the children's home should be like every other home in the street. And they have chaos. They saw the chaos until the next chaos. They, they wallpaper, put wallpaper on the walls. They dig the garden. They fall out with each other. They make up with each other. They say, oh, God. Not spag ball for tea again. You know, all the things that happen in ordinary homes, I won't say normal homes because I, I haven't got a clue what normal home is like. Um, it, it should just be replicated in children's homes, including the language. We all have given names. You know, some of us change from our given name because, you know, I don't, don't want to be called Ethel Red or whatever it might be. You know, I want to be called Bert. But let's use the names we have, you know. Um, Call it, we obviously call the children by name, so they can just call us by name. And that's what that's what life is like for most children in care, in my experience. I'm not saying all. Well, what you've uh, described is a, a really lovely, um, I think, probably optimal experience for children in care, which is wonderful. And the idea that there may be some who are experiencing those, those types of care homes is wonderful. But we also know through a really sort of shocking and concerning uh, programmes that ITV have produced, Channel 4 have produced, and the BBC have produced, which show us a different kind of care home, one where there's very little regulation, one where whatever money comes into the care home is largely spent not on the children, but is going elsewhere. We also know that a lot of these homes are also listed on um, large stock exchanges, and that a lot of this is really viewed as a commercial endeavour rather than a care-based endeavour. So in relation to that, there are a lot of concerns at the moment around the unregulated care home where social workers are going in to work in these care homes where they're not technically social workers. They are uh, carers who are being tasked with looking after what are often very vulnerable children with very complex, sophisticated needs. And we're seeing a, a lot of um, really shocking things happening in these care homes, like uh, poor levels of care and exploitation. What is your uh, concern in relation to those unregulated care homes, if you have any? 
Right, I've got, I've got huge concerns. Um, to be fair, the first thing I need to say is that there are some unregulated homes which are providing excellent care. The irony of that is if they are providing excellent care, then they're operating illegally. Um, because there's a distinction in um, an Ofsted paper called the Introduction to Children's Homes 2018. And Annex A of that identifies the difference between a children's home and supported living environment. And basically, if there's any element of care, then it needs to be registered. So having said that, I don't think we should have any unregulated homes. Um, I, I think that they, if needs be, if these really are places that offer just support, and that is all the children in those homes need, though God knows, I don't know many 16 or 17 year olds who need just support, particularly children who've been in care. What do you mean by just support? Well, support means somebody will pop in now and again, somebody who will uh, remind them of things, somebody who will um, say, oh, maybe you need to clear, clear that kitchen space up because, you know, other children or other young people. I tend to try and stick to children because if you're not 18, you're a child. Um, other children might be using them. Um, Somebody who will make sure or say to them, you know, have you, have you paid your bills this week? I mean, I don't think 16, 17 year olds should be responsible for paying their bills. I've got two daughters, you know, one's nearly 40 and one's 31. And who pays their television licenses? I pay their television license because I know they'll forget. So I've got a direct debit, pay their television licenses. <laughs> you know, um, I, I am the bank of mum and dad. Um, Sorry, me and my, my wife, I should, I should say. Um, so support is not enough for children of that age. Who on earth thinks it can be? Now, the, prob- the major problem with unregulated homes is we don't know where they are unless the local authorities decide to tell us all these places that they are paying for, they are commissioning. Um, and I don't want to demonise local authorities. I know local authorities are in a fix. Austerity is cost them some money but you know some of these unregulated homes i know on the basis of freedom of information uh, requests are charging up to twelve thousand pounds per week per child i don't know where the money's going i almost don't care where the money's going whether it's going to private equity or not i'm interested in the care that's being offered i'm interested that they are meeting a regulation i personally think it should all be the children's homes regulations and quality standards from 2015 because children's homes Regulations are the only ones with attached quality, not like all other care setups, national minimum standards, you know, and that's, that's a whole other debate. Um, so I can't, in, firstly, I can't envisage somebody under 18 just needing support, but it may be possible. But if they were then just going to get support that would never creep back into care, and that's a tough one, um, then the home should be regulated um, and, and inspected on a regular basis by offset, local authorities will say, well, we, we, we check them out. Um, right? I, I go back long enough to know when local authorities had inspection and quality control units, which did inspections, they were crap. They were awful. I got, I, I was, I was a manager in a local authority at that time when the, they were operating. My office happened to be on the, on the ground floor of a horrendous building 
that had been built in 1970 as an assessment centre for children. And then they decided, oh, we can make better use of the space. So there was a little children's home tucked upstairs, and then there was offices for teams. My office was overlooking the footy pitch in the back, as it happens. And an inspector came to me one day and said, I've been doing an inspection in the children's home upstairs. And I said, that's nice. How's it going? Uh, and he said, well, I've got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, you're too accessible. And I said, sorry? He said, well, I've seen you talking to the kids through your window. And I said, yeah, yeah, talk to them all the time. Actually, some of them come in my office. Going back a little bit, so please forgive me for this. I said, sometimes they come in for a smoke uh, at night when I'm, when I'm working at night. And he said, well, that's not fair because other children's homes don't have that. I said, well, I can't have an office in all the children's homes. I said, I try to be friendly to all the children wherever they are. So that, that was the quality of internal inspection. And it makes me wonder, local authorities, if they are inspecting something that they need because um, there aren't sufficient registered children's homes, that they are maybe paying a little bit less for because they don't have qualified staff, we think, because they don't have full enhanced DBS checks, we think, then what are they going to criticise them for, themselves for, in their own inspection? You know, it's, somebody says to me, you know, what sort of a person are you? I say, I'm marvellous, I'm, I'm great, me, you know. Um, no, I probably wouldn't, but I'd say, I'm okay. You know, but other people might say I'm not. Um, so you don't really, shouldn't really have responsibility for inspecting what you've already created yourself. But how easy is it for children in these homes, for example, to uh, raise concerns that they have? And are they taken seriously when and if they do? Well, mo- most of the children I know who have been in those homes don't have an independent advocate. And I'm not saying children in registered homes do, but they do have offset to speak to. They do have a regulation 44 visitor. Sorry, that's somebody who in a children's home, registered children's home, is an independent person who has to visit monthly and do an interim inspection on an independent basis. That inspection is then sent to Ofsted. So every month Ofsted are receiving some information about that home. So in between the 12 monthly or six monthly inspections, they are receiving some, it should be independent information. An An unregistered home, an unregulated home, no such system exists. So the only person a child can complain to is either the staff or their social worker. And I'm not berating social workers. Why would I? I am one. Um, but a lot of these, a lot of these young people don't see their social workers very much. Probably because the social workers chasing their tail because they're too busy. I don't know. Um, so there, there really isn't anybody for them to speak to. And some of the some of the programs highlighted um, the loneliness, the isolation, the, the fractured emotional well-being. Of, of the children who were living there, they knew that they were liable to be exploited. Some of them clearly were being exploited. They had choices limited to them. Presumably it's going to be much harder for a child who may have some kind of pathway to complain to go ahead and do so because of, as you said, the nuances of their day-to-day living in those scenarios, which may be intolerable, intolerable but they can't actually voice their concerns or their fears uh, or their anxieties because there could potentially be a backlash considering where they're living yes absolutely i mean it's you know the the cliche has become would this be good enough for your child um and 
you know, I can only ask any parent in the country of a 16, 17-year-old, um, any politician who is the parent of that, would they be okay with that? I, I remember taking both of my 18-year-old daughters separately, because uh, there's a few years between them, to university. And they were in halls of residence. And I came away crying on the way home because I was so anxious about them. You know, would they be okay? And, and they were 18, technically adults, emotionally, who knows. Um, and, you know, they had, they had a support system around them. They were in university, they were on campus site. Everything, everything was cushy, if you like, for them. And, you know, they went off and lived it up as, you know, students do, no doubt at times. Now, a child who has been in care, and most children put in unregulated homes have been in care. If they are moving on at 16, it's probably because things haven't gone all that well, frankly. So they're certainly not in a foster home because they'd have technically, in reality, not always actually, the right to remain in that foster home until 21. If they were in a children's home, um, theoretically, they could remain until they were 18. Um, so we're probably talking about the children who have got greater challenges, um, who are more complex on occasion, um, or just vulnerable, and they're being sent out kind of, you know, good luck in the world, off you pop, and that just isn't good enough. So did, did all of those experiences um, lead to you deciding to start Every Child Leaving Care Matters? Interestingly, Every Child Leaving Care Matters with nothing to do with unregulated homes. Um, Every Child Matters came about on the M6 um, several years ago, in 2013, in fact. My good friend Ben Ashcroft, um, I was driving back from, from visiting one of the children's homes I was responsible for in Macclesfield. Um, and hands-free, I answered my phone, and and it was Ben. I mean, just it verbally exploding down the phone to me about how horrified he was at something he'd just learned of. I had to say to him, Ben, let me get to a service station. I really can't drive and try and listen to what you're saying. And so I, got, I pulled him to the next services, and he said basically that, you know, the government have announced legislation were they're going to allow every child in foster care to stay put if they wish in their children, in their foster home. But the same isn't going to apply to children in residential care. And Ben and I had got to know each other a little bit um, before then. And he said, we've got to do something, we've got to do something. I said, I haven't got a clue. You know, I don't, don't know what we're going to do. Um, now, Ben was very adept at social media. And so I spoke to him again later that night when I got home. Um, we talked about setting up something in social media with no money, you know, basically saying we wanted the same right to be offered to children in residential care. Why, why, why did we want that? Well, well, firstly, because not to have it is discriminatory. And, you know, if we discriminated against children on the basis of their colour or their creed or their gender or whatever it might be, it would be illegal. So I think it's illegal to, to differentiate on the basis of their place of residence. So there is that. There is also the fact that by and large, and I'm generalising here, children who are in children's homes at 16 have had more difficulties than children who are living in a foster home. Why is that? Well, it's because quite rightly, if a child must enter care, 
you know, if somebody decides that a child must tend to care, then, then the best option for that child is to live with a family. Sometimes, particularly for young children, that, that may include adoption, but in cases of children we're talking about, it's, it's a foster family. Now, children do their best in foster, foster homes. Most foster carers do their best for the child, but sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes it doesn't work on three or four or five or ten, or in my experience, the highest number I had, 22 different occasions of child in 22 different foster homes. Um, at that point, local authorities will, will reluctantly, and I can understand why, because it's an expensive business, say, well, maybe we're going to have to consider residential care for this child. So the child goes to residential care. Often, that child will then move on other occasions within residential care. Why do they move? Why do they move? Well, because they've, they've got difficulties, which we've made worse. You know, most every child, I've got this view, every child coming into care has an attachment difficulty. You know, by definition, they are not living with their birth parents, so there's, there's a start of an attachment problem. Forget anything else. And every place that they have compounds that attachment problem. You know, so if a child's had 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 placements, then the very least they have is an attachment difficulty. Will they have had therapy? Most unlikely. You know, it, it's often not available. And particularly when children are placed in different parts of the country at different occasions, they're certainly not going to get it off CAM services, A, because CAM services are overrun, and B, because children who are short-term residents in an area, understandably, are not prioritised. Uh, sorry, I could go on, but I won't. I'd like people to understand that, therefore, it's likely that children in residential care have a, a greater amount of baggage than children in foster care as a generalisation. And yet these are the ones we're happy to see leaving, going at 16, 17. That's not okay. That's simply not okay. You know, they, they get offered a, a PA, a personal assistant, you know, and, and I spoke to somebody involved in the um, care leave covenant uh, a while ago, which, and I've got to say that I think both Care Leaders Charter and Care Leaver Covenant have failed. Um, and, you know, I was, I was trying to, to say to them, you know, when, when I got to be 18, somebody didn't knock on our door and say, well, I hope you've enjoyed living with your mum and dad, you know, but they're not going to be your mum and dad anymore. Well, they'll still be your mum and dad, but actually this new person, this is Frank, or this is Francis, they're going to be your PA, they're going to guide you through the next period of your life, you get lost having <laughs> that, but we expect children care to do that. And so Every Child Leaving Care Matters was a campaign that, that, that Ben created, if you like, because of his rant, um, which was a very justifiable rant. Um, and we, together with others, um, you know, like Lisa Cherry, Ian Dixon, Rosie Canning, um, in the early days, they were all also part of the campaign. Um, we set it up just to try and get equality for all care leaders of the option to remain where they are. And people say, well, a child can't continue living in their children's home. Why on earth not? You know, give me one good reason. And every politician I have spoken to, I've been able to persuade that actually the fact of the matter is that children in residential care do not grow horns and a forked tail on the night of their ATT or before their 18th birthday. If they were safe living in that house on Tuesday, then they're going to be just as safe living in that house on Wednesday. Um, it's where 
their relationships are. You know, and we talk about relationships in social work in generally and in care particularly. If the child is making a decision that they want to stay, that they're opting to stay put, then you can bet your bottom dollar that that's partly, at least because they have relationships with members of staff there, that they, they trust maybe those members of staff there, and they should be allowed to stay with those members of staff there. For, for a little longer, not forever, we're just saying same as foster kids, until they're 21, until, I mean, we, we, you know, we decided many years ago in this country that, you know, the age of maturity was 18, you know, not 21. Well, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit random, isn't it? You know, um, but so was 21 probably. It's when a child is ready. Um, and I'm not saying children should be able to stay in care forever. Um, but they should be cared about forever. Um, and actually some of those relationships should endure forever. And I've known lots of children in care who still see some of those key people that were their carers at one point and are now their friends. Um, and you know, if, if you look into the stories written by a lot of care leavers, um, and I can only refer people to stories because it's you know they can't necessarily get to meetings. They will often say it was one key person who believed in me, you know, um, and encouraged me, and it was about one care, one person cared for them, and that was what is critical. And actually, often that happens to be somebody in residential care, you know, a resi worker might be somebody who, you know, isn't brilliantly qualified, maybe brilliantly qualified, who knows, um, but actually gets on with the child, you know, loves the child a bit, that's okay, that's allowed. Um, people, people get very strung up about, you can't love a child and go, I've loved loads of them. Um, doesn't mean I wanted to have sex with them. People get very confused about that. And... I can't imagine anything worse than not being cared about. Um, I mean, I just want to crawl into a hole and die. And how do you know you're cared about? People put their arm around you um, and give you a hug. You know, if you feel uncomfortable about it, you ask, can you give them a hug first? Um, or would you like a hug? And it's just a hug. You know, it's, it's not a prelude to something else. Um, so they know if, if, if they're getting, you know, positive physical contact hugs, if you like. They know if somebody's speaking to them and they're emotional about speaking to them. You said something very interesting at the start of the, the programme, which was that when, this was actually, I think, when you and I were chatting before we, we started the, the show, you explained that you had a system in place when you were working as a social worker within a particular council and you had managed to get all of your team to focus on a specific number of cases. And in so doing, you actually ended up closing those files so that those children weren't bouncing back into the system. Presumably some of them were going back to live with their birth parents or making their way out into the world. And we're seeing a lot of uh, conversation at the moment around uh, the idea that we should be trying to support families who may be in need, uh, who may be vulnerable, to care for their own children. Do you think that that's an area that's being overlooked? We actually worked at, at stopping children coming into care in the first place, if possible. And, you know, we were able, social workers often, by and large, I don't know, I can't generalise, are, are good people. They're nice people. They do it because they care. Um, but there's a limit to how much you can do as a social worker, as in anything else. 
And you know, what we did is we, we, we found a way of agreeing with social workers what a reasonable caseload will be. You know, how many, how many cases they could fully concentrate their effort on. Um, and yeah, it caused a lot of problems because it meant there were some cases that we could only deal with on an emergency basis. And it caused me some personal problems because I was responsible for the area and some of the senior managers really didn't like the idea that we were saying, well, effectively, we are putting all these cases to one side, but we're going to concentrate on these ones here. And, and I'm not saying we solved everything, we didn't. But the social workers unleashed, if you like, to do the job properly, they did an amazing job. A lot of children didn't get as far as care. A lot of families got more support. We were able to coordinate things better. And so instead of children being forever on the brink of care, we had children whose families were able to, to manage a lot better because of whatever support they'd been given. Families whose children had sometimes come into care, um, we were able to say things like, okay, well, yeah, the child can come into care for a bit, but hang on, we need to be clear about what this bit is and what's going to happen between now and the end of that bit. You know, what do you need to do as a parent or parents? You know, what do we need to do? What does the child need to do? And, and focus on how that child may be able to return home happily and be cared for well enough. Because let's not make any, mis any mistake here. Care is a bad thing for children. You know, why would anybody think it was anything other than a bad thing? Much of my life has been trying to make it the best it can possibly be. But it's not as good as living with your own family happily and safely. So if we can if we can enable more children not to come into care, A will save shed loads of money, you know, which will please the economists, you know, uh, in the cabinet. But but also we'll be doing a good thing, we'll be keeping families together. And if you look at outcomes for children in care, which is which is something that haunts me all the time, because outcomes for children in care are about the same as they were 40 years ago, which is pretty awful, really. Um, one of the things that distresses me about social work, as a social worker, is that it's one of the few industries, professions, call it what you will, that I can think of, where we have learned so much more in those 40 years, but we don't seem to achieve anything more. 